Mark 9, verses 30 through 50. It's Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50 this morning. You know, country music star Toby Keith wrote a song back in 2001 called, I Want to Talk About Me. The lyrics are as follows. We talk about your work, how your boss is a jerk. We talk about your church and your head when it hurts. We talk about the troubles you've been having with your brother and your daddy and your mother and your crazy ex-lover. We talk about your friends and the places that you've been. We talk about your skin and the dimples on your chin, the polish on your toes and the run in your hose. And God knows we're going to talk about your clothes. You know talking about you makes me smile, but every once in a while, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually, but occasionally I want to talk about me, I want to talk about me. Mr. Keith's song made it into the top of the charts in 2001, not only because of its catchy tune in my estimation, but I think because of its honesty. I think the song makes clear the rally cry of the human heart, which is, it's all about me. The truth is, all of us, apart from Jesus, think almost entirely about ourselves. And our culture encourages us to do this. Love for self in our culture is uh, promoted as the first step towards true greatness. Ralph Waldo Emerson captured this idea when he said, self-trust is the first secret of success. But what we'll find in our text today is a counterculture, a different secret to success, the secret to true greatness, which is not trusting in self, but dying to self. Main idea of our text this morning is the way of greatness is the way of Jesus. I tried to capture uh, this idea that goes along with the text and our one big thing by way of application. So it's an idea you can grab a hold of and apply to your life this week as you meditate on this particular portion of Scripture. It's this Be last, serve all knowing that the gospel empowers us to do this by freeing us from our addiction to ourselves so that we can rightly love God and neighbor through humble service, kingdom unity, and the pursuit of holiness. We're going to work through this text in four parts this morning. Verses 30 through 32, we'll be calling those the flashlight verse. And then we'll take a look at humble service in verses 33 to 37. Kingdom unity in 38 through 42 and the pursuit of holiness in verses 43 through 50. Let's, let's pray together. I, I, did make, I, we, I talked about prayer last week. One of the applications I wanted to make was to, to tell you to pray before you come to church for both my preaching and your listening. And to promise you that if you do this, you will be shocked at, at how much better my preaching is. And so... Uh, it's important for us to pray for one another and to ask the Lord to uh, reveal himself to us in his word. Let, let, let's pray together. Jesus, we need you this morning. Help to turn our hearts from an inward focus on ourselves towards you. Help us to 
stop looking to uh, earn our own righteousness or make ourselves acceptable by these things that we do, but to look towards your righteousness. Father, we thank you for living the life that we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, and rising as the first fruits of the new creation. We thank you that we've been united to you in your death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, we look forward to that day when you will come and make all things new. But for now, we, we live in a fallen world. We are a broken people. Lord, give us grace. Help us to hear and to understand. Amen. Let's look at verses 30 through 31. They went on from there passed, and passed through Galilee. And he, that's Jesus, did not want anyone to know. Why didn't Jesus want anybody to know? I think the immediate answer is in verse 30, or 31, I'm sorry, where he says he's going to be teaching the disciples. He wants to make clear to them what will only become really understandable from the vantage point of the cross and the resurrection. They're not going to get it, but he's going to try to teach them anyway. It's also important that he keeps it a secret at this point because uh, the Jewish authorities are not really happy with him. They're, they're looking to kill him, and uh, Herod Antipas isn't a big fan either. Jesus will not be taken to Jerusalem or taken somewhere he does not want to go, but he will march to Jerusalem. And so for now, he operates in somewhat, somewhat kind of like a little bit of secrecy. So they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. There is an ambiguous um, agent in terms of who is delivering, doing the delivering of Jesus over to the hands of men. And so uh, I render that this agent, I believe this agent is God the Father. And so the verse might read like this, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered by God the Father, we would say parenthetically, into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they, that's the disciples, did not understand the saying. And we're afraid to ask him. So these verses will serve as a key for understanding the paragraphs that, that follow. You can see in your Bible, if it's set up like mine is, that there are four little paragraphs, and this is the first of the four. And, and what it does is it kind of works like a flashlight. It's going to shine on the rest of the paragraphs. You can think of the last three paragraphs uh, a little bit like furniture in a dimly lit room. We're only going to be able to see all of the furniture by shining a light on it. This, this flashlight verses here, these flashlight verses here, are going to help to show us that Jesus is the way of true greatness. Jesus, in the verses that follow, will be turning everything upside down. He's going to turn upside down the expectations of the Messiah. He's going to turn upside down the values of the world. In fact, he's going to show us that he's not going to pick up the sword and bring judgment and demand his crown, but instead pick up his cross, bear judgment, and deliver his people. You see, Jesus is not a king like other kings. He's not a celebrity. He's not like the rich. He's not like you or me. He's not going to seek first himself, but the will of God. He's not going to look for ways to get ahead or to gain power over others. Instead, he's going to give away power and serve others. 
See, according to the values of the world, you've made it. When you have lots of money, you're comfortable, you have lots of sex, you have power. When you get to do things your way, you know you've made it when everybody trips all over themselves to serve you, to be at your beck and call. But according to the values of the kingdom of God, no one ever makes it. Jesus makes it for you. You see, in the economy of God, the one who lovingly serves neighbor is truly great. The way of the cross shows us that true success, true greatness, isn't gained by being served, but by trusting Christ and lovingly serving others. The way of greatness is the way of Jesus. This is indeed a hard teaching, so difficult, in fact, that the disciples, they didn't understand it. They, as we'll continue to see, still think Jesus is going to be this conquering hero king, somebody like David. And so as they head towards Jerusalem, they're expecting a war. They're expecting Jesus to overthrow the oppressors. I found it interesting that God speaks to the disciples clearly, but they don't seem to listen very well. Which made me wonder, how good are we listening when God speaks? What might you be missing? When we listen to God in prayer and in his word, are are we willing to have our way of understanding things corrected by it? Or do we go before him with deaf ears, only hearing what we want to? We're now going to see how these verses function as a flashlight a little bit by juxtaposing the way of Jesus with the way of the world. Verses 33 through 37. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? The stark contrast between Jesus' humility and the disciples' desire for distinction and recognition is about to be revealed. And I I love their response. What were you talking about on the way here? And there's just silence. Almost like the kid, he's got his hand in the cookie jar, and mom rolls into the kitchen. What are you doing? Silence. Nothing. We're talking about anything, Jesus. But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The contrast between Jesus' attitude and that of the disciples, it's jarring. Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, suffering, and death. The disciples voice their ambitions for status and prestige. Jesus speaks of surrendering his life. The disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. He counts the cost of discipleship, and they count its assets. The disciples have yet to learn that the rewards of discipleship come only as a consequence of following the way of Christ, which is the way of the cross. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and will be killed. And then rise after three days. And the disciples say, it's going to be really great to rule alongside Jesus when we get to Jerusalem and overthrow everybody. Perhaps Peter, James, and John are saying something along the lines of, and the three of us, we're going to be the greatest. We were with him praying on the mountain after all, while the rest of you schmucks were down there in the valley failing to cast out demons. We're obviously better than you. I can hear Peter stammering on about he's probably even the best of the three. He, after all, confessed Jesus before anyone else. 
And he was with him on the mountain, despite the fact he fell asleep on that mountain. And Jesus uh, soon rebuked him as Satan after his confession. It's just how I, I picture this argument over who's the greatest going. I think I, I picture it that way because I know how my own, my own heart works. And maybe yours works that way too. Often guilty of thinking of myself as better than others. Often guilty of thinking of myself before others. Often make very little of my own failures and make a big deal out of the failures of others. My sin, eh, it's not that bad. Other people's sin, it's a big deal. My sinfulness, I know that like Peter and the others, I, I would have been in the middle of discussion arguing about how great I am. Don't you know I'm the pastor at Rockfish Valley? I've been arguing about how my religious activities merit something. I deserve to be the greatest. I deserve to be at Jesus' side. Even though I know the gospel says I am far from great because I'm a sinner who's fallen short of the glory of God. Even though the gospel tells me that my religious activities, when done in an effort to gain righteousness, can only earn me hell. Still, my heart lusts after making much of myself. Can you relate to Peter, myself, and the rest of the disciples? I mean, do you, do you struggle with pride? Is the melody of your heart, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. Are you all about me? I think Dr. Aiken helps us to diagnose ourselves by offering us what he terms the painful pride test. These are the questions. Let's see how you do. Am I upset if I am not praised for my work? Do I like and even long to sit at the head table in the seat of honor? Do I seek credit? Do I seek credit for what other people have done? Do honorary titles pump me up? Is popularity crucial to my sense of self-worth? Am I constantly checking Facebook, Twitter, and other social media outlets in order to validate myself? Am I a name dropper of those I know or pretend to know? Do I think I have something valuable to say about almost everything? Pride, especially religious pride, is dangerous. It's deadly. It will harm your relationship with God. In fact, James tells us that when we become proud, God opposes us. He says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think the best way to deal with pride is to remember the gospel. It helps us to kill our pride and to live like Jesus by reminding us that we are so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. And at the same time, we are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. What a beautiful balance. Complete humility and complete confidence at the same time. In Jesus, we find ourselves. We can make much of him. Don't let pride deafen you to the voice of God. 
Preach the gospel to yourself. Listen to what it says. Know that the Son of Man was betrayed into the hands of men, was killed for you, and on the third day rose again, so that you might rise like him and to prove his victory over death. Jesus gently rebukes the disciples here by assuming the position of a teacher. He, he sits down and he says, verse 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus redefines greatness in response to this discussion about who's the best. And his point is simple. The world has it backwards. A person's greatness is determined not by their social status or how many servants they have, but how they serve others. In other words, Jesus says true greatness serves God by serving others rather than self. True success in God's economy is loving your neighbor as yourself. And this truth, it's, it's radical. James Edwards notes, the Greek world generally considered service demeaning and undignified. It's true, Plato captures the idea. He said, quote, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone, end quote. Servants are not held in high esteem. Who would want to serve other people? I don't want to be the one fanning the guy that's laid back and eating grapes. I want to be the guy that's laid back and eating grapes. But Jesus' selfless service of others, it fills the concept of servant with an entirely new content, entirely new meaning. Now, the posture of a servant is a visible manifestation of the reality of God's love. You see, service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. He's the perfect servant. He's worth imitating. Not only that, but Jesus says, you're only going to find real and lasting happiness, true joy when you serve others, not because you have to, but because you want to. Jesus summons us to pursue not the position of worldly greatness, but the posture of a servant. He calls us to be those that wait tables, wash feet, visit the sick, love the orphan, care for the widow, speak for the voiceless, wash dishes, feed the hungry, and change diapers. That's why my wife is holier than I am. She changes many more diapers than I do, to my shame. The work of a servant is not glorious in man's eyes, but it's great in God's. Jesus makes this statement, and then he puts his money where his mouth is. He puts flesh on his words in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He doesn't mean you don't get me when, when you receive a child. It's not only me, but also the Father, right? Get me and then some when you receive a child. See, Jesus picking up a kid in this culture, I should tell you, is really weird. Like, in our culture, that makes sense. You pick up kids, they're, they're loved and lovable. But in this culture at this time, children were not celebrated. High infant mortality rates, their inability to work when they're really young, their dependence on others made them liabilities more than assets. They were considered and thought of as auxiliary members of the community. See, a little child would have been a perfect example of the last 
or the least. Jesus is using the child to say, serve those that you can gain nothing from. Receiving the last and the least results in receiving Jesus himself, fellowship with God. He's effectively saying, serve those with zero status, orphans, lepers, AIDS victims, the mentally handicapped, the physically disabled, the homeless, the homebound, the floundering single mother, the unemployed pregnant teenage girl, the struggling immigrant, the prisoner. Serve those who are marginalized and you'll receive fellowship with the Father. You'll receive Jesus. That's a, that's a tall order. And I think we need to think about how we as individuals and as a church can better follow the way of Jesus. How can you, how, how can we better serve those with no status? How can we serve the marginalized and the oppressed? Let me offer you a few suggestions this morning and challenge you to do one of them in addition to prayer. Because prayer is one of them, but most of you will just say, yeah, I've prayed about it and not take action on the other one. Challenge you to pick one out of this list, couple it with prayer, and do it. Serve those that you can gain nothing from. Number one, all of us need to consider how to serve the orphan. Some of you need to consider adoption. Others of you need to consider how to help, how to help fund someone's adoption. Others of you need to think about becoming foster parents. You can do it. Be very hard. And you will likely suffer financially and emotionally. But that is the cost and the call of discipleship. I, mean, I, think, I think some of us do not suffer much because we do not love much. Consider how to love orphans. Number two, visit a prison. Build relationships with the inmates there. If you're too afraid to visit, write letters to inmates. Share the gospel with them. Number three, consider allowing a single mother to live with you. Perhaps more simply, offer to pay for her groceries once a month, whatever the amount. Number four, offer food and clothing to the homeless. Maybe give them a gift card for a restaurant or a department store. Maybe if you, if you have the ability, offer them a job to work. Five, visit or call one homebound person a week. This should be an easy one for all of us to do. We, we have plenty of members in nursing homes or that are homebound. Go and care for them. Shame on you if you don't. Number six, for the physically disabled offer to take them to doctor's appointments or to church, places they need to go. Have them over for dinner. Find a way to serve them. Number seven and lastly, pray. Pray for opportunities to know and serve the last and least in our society. Friends, Give substance to your love. Put flesh on your words. Put your money where your mouth is. Care for others. Be true disciples. 
Be worthy of the name of Christ. Be last. Serve all. And you will find that you are following the way of greatness. The way of Jesus. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus' words about service seem to have fallen on deaf ears here. John's uh, response seems to reveal that he regards his call as a disciple, not as a call to service, but as an entitlement of privilege and exclusion. John and the others tell Jesus, hey, we saw this guy casting out demons. He wasn't with our crew, and so we told him, you've got to stop that. Stop spreading the message of Jesus' power. You're not one of us. I mean, do note here, I think it's, it's funny. The disciples are trying to stop someone from doing what they couldn't do just a few verses earlier because of their prayerless faith. It seems the disciples believed that only they, the twelve, were supposed to point to the power of Jesus. I think this attitude is an extension of the selfishness that's evidenced in their conversation about who would be the greatest. They still have their minds set on the things of the world rather than the kingdom of God. They seem to be concerned with building their own kingdoms rather than Jesus' kingdom. Yet this worldly mindset isn't unique to the disciples. And you might have saw this coming. But it shows up among us today. I mean, we do the same thing, don't we? When we are more concerned with promoting our church and our Southern Baptist denomination, when we're more concerned with that than promoting the gospel of Christ. Are there false churches and false teachers and false gospels that need to be opposed? Yes, yes, yes. But there are many true churches. There are many good teachers preaching the explicit gospel. And we need to encourage them, link arms with them, rather than shake our fists at them. We need to pray for churches in our valley to embrace the gospel. We need to pray that they might flourish. We need to partner with healthy churches that practice sound doctrine. Guys from Uptown Church will will be here April 19th to talk to us about what it looks like to link arms with them, to pray for them, to support them. We need to pray for the flourishing of denominations that love God's word and preach Christ crucified as the only way of salvation. Friends, the kingdom of God is not about Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. The kingdom of God is not about the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's all about God and His glory. If you're more devoted to building your ministry, your church, your denomination, your kingdom, your reputation than you are about furthering the kingdom of God, then you are in sin. Repent. Check the status of your heart. Ask God to create in you a pure heart and to renew a steadfast spirit that longs to see every person everywhere in the world confess that Jesus is Lord. Our goal needs to be not the growing of our churches, but the growth of the gospel. If that includes our church, hallelujah. If it does not, hallelujah. God will get his glory. 
Our goal needs to be the same as Jesus' goal, which is filling the earth with worshipers of God by preaching and embodying the Gospel. Friends, we need to concern ourselves with the cause of Christ, not the mission of self. Jesus corrects this hellish attitude that thirsts for status and power by pointing to the inclusive nature of the gospel. Verse 39, But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for one who does a mighty work in my name will not be able soon after to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. See, the kingdom of God is far more inclusive than just the twelve, a single church, or a single denomination. It includes all who by faith turn from their sins, trust in Jesus' atoning sacrifice, put their confidence in his perfect life, and unite themselves to him in his resurrection by faith. The kingdom includes anyone who knows and loves Jesus. And all those that love Jesus obey Jesus. Which means that everyone that knows Jesus will promote the kingdom of Jesus. God tells the disciples and us not to stop anyone from furthering the gospel. God's kingdom is far bigger than our experience of it. The point here is that we should never hinder the spread of the authentic gospel. We should generously accept other Christians. In other words, don't cause unnecessary divisions among the people of God. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, it's more important that servants of God are devoted to Christ than they are to one of us. I mean, trying to stand in the way of gospel-centered ministry of another denomination, church, or a person, it's lunacy. It would be like police officers from different precincts in the same city trying to stop one another from investigating murders or writing traffic tickets. Even though police officers are from different precincts, they serve the same city under the same authority with the same goal. And so they work together. Likewise, genuine Christ followers from different churches or precincts serve the same city, the city of God, under the same authority, Jesus' authority, with the same goal, the glory of God, and ought to work together. We need to be together for the gospel. God's mission should eradicate, it should do away with the selfishness that is so often allowed to eat out the heart of the local church. Allegiance to Christ will lead us to applaud and celebrate those on God's team, even if they're different from us. Let me ask you, is there someone you need to reconcile be at peace with? Is there some ministry you've stood in the way of that you need to get out of the way? Jesus continues his instruction in verse 41 with a promise. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The promise is that the humblest act of kindness, even giving a cup of cold water, does not go unrewarded by God. What's done to a follower of Jesus is received by Christ as if it were done to himself. Jesus says as much in Matthew, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Promise of a reward for doing good to a disciple is followed by a warning about harming a disciple. Verse 42, 
whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The little ones in this verse are those that follow Jesus. They are disciples. Verse is reinforcing the point that whatever is done to a follower of Jesus, whether for good or bad, is done to Jesus himself. Love Dr. Aiken's paraphrase here. He says, if you cause just one disciple to stumble, it would be better for you to be given a pair of cement shoes than to be hurled into the ocean. I believe Jesus here is addressing the pride of any who follow him. He's warning if you discount or hinder the faith of another Christ follower because they don't belong to your particular tribe or circle, then you are guilty of harming Jesus himself. Verse 42 is a sober warning against inhibiting, injuring, or destroying the faith of other disciples. Those that stand against kingdom unity stand against the kingdom itself and against Jesus himself. In fact, the desire for honor and status can prevent someone from being a disciple at all. Those who feed the pride monster in an attempt to make themselves great succeed only in cutting themselves off from the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus uses such extreme language to exhort us to pursue holiness. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus' language here is metaphoric hyperbole employed to underscore the severity of sin. Jesus doesn't want you to cut off your hands, gouge out your eyes, or chop off your foot. We'd all be in some disobedience there if he did doesn't believe that your hand, independent of you, actually causes you to sin all on its own. No, Jesus knows, and Sam Storms notes, our external members, our hands and feet and eyes, are but the instruments we employ to gratify the lust that emerges from within. Jesus knows the real problem is the human heart. If you allow sin to fester within your heart, you will enter hell rather than life together with God. Here's the point. Sin allowed to live within you will destroy you. Metaphors of eyes, hands, and feet are all-inclusive. What we view, what we do, and where we go. In other words, nothing can be allowed to stand in the way of your relationship with God. We should be willing to reject or cut off anything even good things, even God-given things, if they lead us into sin. What in your life is standing in the way of your relationship with God? What good things might you need to remove from your life in order to pursue holiness? Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt on yourselves 
and be at peace with one another. What? (laughs) What does that mean? These verses are somewhat puzzling. They've been interpreted in a lot of ways, but, but let me tell you what I think. This is it. Christ followers will be refined by the fires of trial that accompany discipleship. In other words, be willing to give up anything, even an eye, a hand, or a foot, for Jesus. Because all disciples will endure costly and painful circumstances in this life. You see, suffering doesn't destroy the believer, but purifies him. Salt losing its saltiness refers to unfaithful disciples that don't persevere in following Jesus. If the conditions of discipleship are not met, forsaking sin and giving singular devotion to Jesus displayed in love for God and neighbor by the power of the Holy Spirit, if the conditions of discipleship are not met, then just like unsalty salt, the unfaithful disciple is less than worthless. James Edwards is right when he encourages us to understand these verses against the backdrop of temple sacrifice, in which both fire and salt played indispensable roles. The Israelite burnt offerings were required to be wholly consumed by fire in order to be acceptable. Smoke rising from a consuming fire was a pleasing incense to God. And salt was not only a sign of the covenant, but also was required to accompany all Israelite sacrifices. See, in the present context, fire and salt appear to be symbols of the trials and the costs of discipleship. Discipleship to Jesus lays a total claim on one's life. And the language of sacrifice must be totally consuming or it's worthless. Testing by fire is not simply a painful necessity of discipleship, but an offering itself pleasing to God. In verses 43 through 50, Jesus is saying, true disciples never stop pursuing holiness. So stop hindering the spread of the gospel with the pursuit of your own kingdoms. Stop arguing over who is the greatest and follow the way of greatness. Follow the way of the cross. Son of man will be betrayed, killed, buried, and he will rise again. The servant of all imitating. Be last, serve all. Be a reflection of the God-given peace that you have received from the Son of Man. Jesus gave himself into the hands of men to be killed for your sins and to rise as the first fruit of the new creation so that by faith in him you might also die to sin and live to righteousness as a new creation. Christ followers pursue holiness because in Jesus they are holy. Christ followers work together because in Jesus they belong to the same family. Christ followers humbly serve one another because in Jesus they have been humbly served. Christ followers die to self because in Jesus they have been crucified. Christ followers live like Christ because in Christ they have been raised to new life. Christ followers know the way of greatness is the way of the cross. Will you be great? Will you follow the King? Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Grant us your grace and your mercy. 
Keep us from the evil one. Purify our hearts. Help us to put flesh on our words. Help us to pay the cost of discipleship and to repent of this lukewarm following of you. Lord, help us to be radically obedient, willing to give up anything that might hinder our relationship with you, willing to do anything to serve the least and the last. Father, give us the posture of servants. Give us your posture that we might be great in the kingdom, that we might bring you glory. You alone are worthy. 